0: Good morning, church. My name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here. Certainly glad to see you guys together for the worship of God today. That's what we're gathered here for. Um, We want to be a people who've been rescued by God. are connected to one another and loving and serving God in the world, and we love that you guys get to be part of that. We've been doing that throughout the week, wherever we're at, wherever we live, work, and play, and this moment is really important to us because we get to gather those stories into the same room. Now, if you're new here, we've prayed for you, and we would love to know that you're here. You can grab this card in the seat back in front of you, fill it out, and drop it in the give boxes to the right and to the left of the doors on your way out, Um, and we will contact you in a respectful way. If you have a copy of God's Word with you today, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 2. It's also going to be on the screen, but we're going to be in Jonah chapter 2 for the most part today. And last week we began a new sermon series in the book of Jonah, and it's a story about Jonah, of course, It's also a story about the big fish and everybody knows that part of the story, but it is mostly a greater story about God. It's a story about who he is and how he works in the world, how he's using his power and might in creation to demonstrate who he is and how he works and his ultimate story of grace and redemption, specifically in the life of Jonah. And that reflects also in the story of the gospel and how he's working in our lives. There's a few themes that I went over last week that are in this book and they're demonstrated all throughout the story. It's this God's sovereignty, man's futility and the mystery of God's mercy and in all of those we see them over and over. Um, through each chapter of this book. First, God's sovereignty. He controls the storm, all of creation, a fish, both to swallow him up and to spit him out in this chapter. We see man's futility in Jonah, that Jonah is helpless to save himself. He's absolutely doomed when it comes to his own redemption if it was not for God's intervention and God's mercy. And then throughout the book, we see God demonstrating his mercy through both uh, the story of this rebellious prophet, this religious man who refused to do God's will and towards a rebellious people next week. And so in all of this, my hope is this, that we would lift up the name of Christ that we'd exalt him and who he is in the story above every other part of the story. And so we looked at last week, God's call to Jonah, Jonah's rebellion, and then God's pursuit of him. And God's going to bring Jonah to this point of crisis where he literally brings him to rock bottom, or he's, he describes it in this passage as the roots of the mountains And so many of us have had these kinds of moments, the roots of the mountain moment, where there is absolutely no escape from the consequences of our sin, from the consequences of our choices. And there's a way in which these kinds of crises reveal things to us. They reveal things about who we are and where our faith is, what we're trusting in, what we're hoping in. And it also reveals who God is in our personal story. You want to see who someone really is? Then walk with them through crisis. You walk through through a crisis with them, through a moment, a pivotal moment. And one of the most merciful things that God can do to us and for us is bring us to a point of crisis where he ceases our running. And he reveals things to us in these moments of darkness and trials. And so... I want you to imagine today that one of the kindest things that God could do for you if you're running from him is to bring you to the end of your running so that you could see that he alone is your only hope. So if you're bewildered today, if you kind of stumbled into this room because of someone else's invitation and you're wondering what is God about, what is your hope I want you to ask God, what are you doing? What are you trying to show me? Because in the midst of great darkness, a lot of times He reveals who He is and where our faith is. And in this story, He reveals who Jonah is, who God is to Him, and then how He's going to deliver Him through a fish. So, with that in mind, let's read, starting in chapter 1, verse 17, the story of Jonah being swallowed in His repentance. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Jonah 2, verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today. We've, we come before you And before the authority of your scriptures and ask that you would speak to us. That our hearts would yield to you in these moments. That you would both instruct us, correct us. That you would comfort us with the hope of redemption. And that you would bring us to a point of realization of who you are and how you're working in our salvation. And that we would respond with thanksgiving from this place forward. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, there's so many things going on in this psalm, this prayer of Jonah from the belly of the fish. But I want to make some general observations about Jonah's prayer in this moment of crisis. A few things that Jonah sees in this very dark moment, actually four. First, he sees the gravity of his sin's consequence. He sees the hope of God's redemption. He sees the futility of idols. And then last, he sees the salvation of the Lord. And in all of these things he sees, he responds with repentance and confession and thanksgiving. And so first, he sees the gravity of sin's consequence. He describes it as the heart of the seas, the flood surrounded him, the waves and billows passed over him. He said he was driven away from God's sight initially. He's trying to run away from God. Now he feels the danger of being cast away from God's sight, being disconnected from God altogether. He's imagining a hell for himself where God's merciful presence isn't there. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. If the waters weren't enough to make him panic, he's wrapped up in some weeds. He's at rock bottom at the roots of the mountains and goes down to this place and he's basically saying, I was a dead man. I was doomed. There was no hope for me. He was in a moment of crisis and it brought him to this point of distress where that brought an end to his running brought an end to his avoidance of God. And suddenly he sees that his avoidance and running of God from God would be the thing that he would want to avoid. He brought an end to his independence and to a point of confession. So all of these consequences leads him to personal confession of his sin. 24 times throughout this Psalm, it says, I, me, you, all of his expression to God was personal. It was about him talking to God from the belly of this fish. It's full of Scripture. So much of Jonah's prayer is this reciting of what he had known from the Psalms, from different places in the Scripture. His language is filled with truth in this moment. And yet he finds himself running. It's so sad. Can you imagine that his mind had been filled up with truth up until this point, And suddenly he's expressing this truth in a completely different way from how he had memorized it, I'm sure, as a kid. <laughs> And he sees a couple of things about his circumstance. Number one, that God is in control of it. It's God's billows and waves. He's in ultimate sovereign control of everything that's happened to him. And he also realizes that he's the one who's brought all of this on himself. God has said, go. He said, no. He gives us this command and we refuse him so many times. And this is the story of Jonah. He goes the opposite direction. He leaves the place where God has told him to go and he goes the opposite way. And God's mercy is there pursuing him in the midst of this consequence. And he says, I know it's because of me. In chapter one, he says, I, I know this is because of me, verse 12, for I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. So he's already come to the realization of his own responsibility in the consequences of his sin. At this point, he's just thinking, I'm going to die. Throw me in. I'd, I'd be better off dead. God is judging me. And one of the things I want you to know about God's mercy is one of the most merciful things that he could reveal to us is that he is judge over us. That he's just when he judges. God's mercy towards us softens our hearts so that we can see that God's judgment is just. In Revelation 19, Chapter 19, verse two, it says, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are true and just. And in this moment of clarity for Jonah, the first thing he sees is not just that he's responsible, but God's judgment towards him is actually right. It's a moment of clarity where he doesn't see that not only God is in control of the storm and the fish but that he's responsible for his sin and his sin has brought the righteous judgment of God on him. And in that moment of his helplessness and he realizes I can't do anything about it. I'm doomed here. I'm trapped in the belly of a fish. He remembers the Lord and he begins to pray. So from his helplessness, he moves towards this point of hope in verse four. It says from the depths of the belly of this fish, Jonah is saying, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Now, can you imagine this complete and utter darkness for three days? And in that moment where there's no, there's no way for him to escape, he's completely helpless over his circumstance. God gives him this moment of hope. He says, there's going to be a day when I worship you again in your temple. The God who's merciful, who sees and hears and listens to our cries also fills us not just with the reality of God's judgment, but also the hope of his redemption. He remembered the Lord. Verse seven, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. In the darkness of the storm and the waters and the fish and the end of his running. He also brought an end to this shallow realization of who God is and how he's working. He started to imagine that there's more to my story. And some of you are in some present darkness of a moment right now. You're in a moment of crisis or trial and you think, maybe this will be the end of me. If you haven't been there currently, you've been there in the past, and if you haven't been there in the past, I promise that there's going to be some moment where you think, this is it. This is it. This is the end of my life. It's over. And in that moment, Jonah turns to the Lord and he remembers him. And he, he believes in this moment that there's some future moment where he's going to worship God in his temple. That there's some place in the midst of this trial and storm he's saying, I thought my life was over, but there's not, my story's not over. There's hope for me. Crisis has the same, uh, a way of doing the same kind of things today, if we allow it. It'll show us all the ways that we're helpless to change our circumstances. It'll show us all the ways that God is inviting us to see him as our hope. And some of you banked everything in your life on the success of your job. And for some reason, it feels like it's over. Maybe you banked your identity on your kids and they're floundering. They're not doing great. Some of you may be running from God's purpose in your life, feeling like it's just over the horizon. That's where the relief will be. And you keep looking, maybe the next vacation, maybe the next opportunity to get away, maybe the next uh, counseling session, whatever it is that you're looking to, God's saying, hey, I'm here as your hope. And in this moment, in the midst of of the storm and the belly of the fish, Jonah realizes that he's helpless over his condition, but he believes that this isn't the end of his story. There's something coming in the future. And it leads to this transformation of grace. He begins to give thanks. Now, he prayed this from the belly of the fish. He begins to praise the Lord for his deliverance. This is before the Lord has caused the, the, the fish to spit him out. And he begins to pray and say, I remembered the Lord. And it was with thanksgiving. It trans- he transitions from despondency to pleading with god for mercy and to this firm resolve that god is going to in fact deliver him and in that resolve he sees something really clearly not just god's hope of redemption but how all of these idols would forsake his hope of steadfast love look at verse eight those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs In other words, he's seeing the futility of everything else that he could cling to. He sees it and he sees the end of it. And he's saying, that's not going to work for him. He sees that all of those things that he would put his trust in, all the things that he could potentially build his life on, they're not going to work out because they're not God. They're idols. One of the most merciful things that God could do for us today is to reveal all the things that we might be chasing after that are going to leave us feeling empty. And leave us in this place where we're not fulfilled. Maybe some comfort, some uh, sense of power or control over your story. And all of these things, one of the most merciful things God could do for us today is to show us the end result of each of those things. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. And this leads to this heart of repentance His heart's turning towards God because maybe there seemed to be no other option. God will use those kind of circumstances where it's like, hey, I ran out of options here. It's dark three days. I'm covered in fish vomit and my sin didn't seem it's not working out for me. Before I move on from this, I just want to ask you really quickly. What calls you away from the steadfast love of God? What sirens call out to you to leave the path? What comforts and control and power? Maybe the the desire to please others calls you away from this faithful life that God's invited you into. What vain things might charm you the most to forsake obedience to Christ? Part of God's work of mercy is revealing what those things are and showing you they're just going to leave you empty. It's not going to work out. And in that place, he begins to sing this song of praise. He sees the salvation of the Lord. That's the last thing that he sees, or that I'm going to observe that he sees. That He sees God's salvation and responds with thankfulness. He begins to praise who God is in this psalm. Throughout it, he's saying, God, you're the, you're the sovereign over everything, over the fish, the flood, the seas, the billows, waves. Now, this isn't the first time that Jonah's acknowledged that God was in charge of all this stuff. In fact, in chapter one, he tells tells the sailors, he says, look, I fear the Lord, the God of the land and the sea. Now this has to be a little bit different, right? Can you imagine the difference in his tone when at first he's telling the sailors, yeah, I fear the God of the, the sea and the dry land. And now he's saying, God, you are the God over the billows, the waves, the sea. There's a sudden nearness to the reality that God is sovereign over everything. He's the God who sees. He praises him as the God who sees him. He's not absent from the darkest place in his story, the most God. He's unlike all of the gods of the sailors who did not hear the cry of those who cried out to him. He's saying, he hears me, he sees me. My prayer came to you. One of the mysteries of God's mercy is that he can hear us in the most darkest moments when we pray. It didn't bounce against the ceiling or against the belly of the fish. And as I mentioned last week in Psalm 139, there's no place that you could run to where you could hide from him. He's the God who hears us, sees us. He's sovereign over everything and he delivers us. God brought up my life from the pit. He's delivering Jonah from certain death. God's delivering Jonah even before he began to pray. You guys hear that? Before Jonah had even begun to cry out for God's mercy, he's appointing a fish to scoop him up. He's appointing a storm to turn him back. And God's mercy pursues us in the same ways, using crisis and trial to gain our attention, to help us to see things clearly in the dark that we might miss in the light. And in all these things, God's control God's control of the storm, the fish, the survival, all of this, these are acts of God's mercy and salvation for him. And then he appoints the fish to spit him out. So I want you to imagine for a moment, Jonah's covered in fish guts, nasty fish vomit. You can only imagine what that would have smelled like. He's stinking and covered up, and he, God plucks up this incredibly humbling moment And he brings him into chapter 3 to be part of his purpose again. And he says, look, I want you to go and give my message to the people you've been running from. Same thing is true for us. So many of us who are running from him, resistant to his mercy and his pursuit, he's saying, I have things that I have planned for your life that you would miss out on if you do not heed my call. His joy of salvation led to thanksgiving. Now, there's this reality between chapter one and who Jonah says he's following, and chapter two when he prays out, that just seems like this farthest gap between knowledge of who God is and the experience of his deliverance. And so many people, especially in the South, have that same distance. I have some friends of mine that are dreaming about buying a new house, and every day they spend some time on Zillow. Yeah, how many years? Know what that's like? You're just constantly looking at Zillow, you're seeing every feature. And then the reality of stepping into one of those homes, when you look at it, you're like, wait, this is totally different. This is a way different experience. But so many of us treat God as if he's a Zillow visit where we're just trying to see what the features are. And he's inviting us to abide with him. And this moment, in the darkest moment, when he felt the farthest from God, he has this experience. And so many of us have this experience of God's grace. And you know that you had heard about it before. You'd heard the gospel before. You had heard the story of of God's grace. Now, in uh, J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God, he describes the difference between a shallow knowledge of God and a deep reality and understanding and experience of who he is. Now, I'm going to summarize his uh, four points of how we move from one to the other. And I'm going to use different words, but I'm totally ripping off J.I. Packer. He's a much smarter man than me. There's a change that happens from knowledge to experience. In order to experience God's grace, these four things have to happen for an individual. First, we have to experience our moral bankruptcy. Tim Keller says that we live in an age marked by the triumph of the therapeutic. In other words, we're taught over and over that our problem is the system, it's socialization, it's the mistakes our parents made, it's avoidant of what Packer is describing as the moral ill desert of man. This moral bankruptcy where we say, I'm doomed. Like, there's nothing that I've done that would attribute righteousness to me. And if you want to not just hear about God's grace, this is the first step in doing that. You've got to see that you're morally bankrupt. There's nothing that you could do to save yourself. There's nothing that you can contribute to your righteousness or to your salvation except your need. That's all we bring to the table. The second thing is we've got to see God as judge or Uh, as Packer says, the retributive justice of God. In contrast to the popular idea that you can do whatever wrong and you can just ignore it and ignore and pretend that it never happened because we want to be culturally accepted or apply the same principle to God, that's just not true. We have to see him as this righteous, holy judge. In other words, the reason that we have cheap grace is because we do not believe that God is offended by sin. He's holy and righteous. We have to see him first as judge in order to appropriate this desire for thankfulness to his mercy. You will only appreciate God's mercy in as much as you appreciate how righteous and holy and perfect and majestic he is, that he reigns over all time. And third, we have to see that we're helpless. The spiritual impotence of man, as Packer puts it. It's the opposite of the idea that we can win friends and influence people in order to solve our problems. We're unable to fix this terrible wrong that was incurred. We've not just sinned against one another, we've sinned against the God of the universe. And then, lastly, God is free. In other words, there's no way for you to make God owe you anything. You can't say A plus B equals my salvation. You can't create some solution where you add some things together and suddenly God owes you something. God is free to do whatever he chooses. And in his great mercy, he chooses to pour out his love and grace towards us. And I want you to know that if you're a recipient of it, there's nothing that has caused him to do that except for his goodness towards you. There's nothing that you did in order to deserve it. He's free. We can't do something that would put God on the hook. He freely chooses to pour out his grace towards everyone who believes. And that invitation is we can be grateful for in as much as we understand that he's free to do whatever he chooses. And he chooses to love everyone who believes. So Jonah's prayer lays out all of those things. He sees that he's responsible for the predicament he's in. He sees that it's ultimately God who's judging him. He sees that he's helpless against it. And he also sees God's salvation, that he was free and he chose to help him and to deliver him. And so for all of us who believe, how do we respond to this grace? It's not with sacrifices. It's not so that that we uh, could bring something to, to try to repay God. You cannot bring something that would repay something you don't, have the, you, you don't have enough praise to bring. There's nothing that we could do to say, you, I owe you, God. You've, I'm going to try to pay you back with my good deeds and good life. There's nothing like that. It's too expensive. It's too costly what Christ has done on our behalf. And so how do we respond to his grace? Psalm 51, after David's great sin, he says this, For you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are this, a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. This is the work of God's mercy in our lives, that we come to a place of brokenness and we respond to him with faith and repentance and with joy over his great salvation towards us, with thanksgiving that he's delivering us. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, is what he says. In all of these ways, I rejected you, yet you brought up my life from this moment. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily, I'm constrained today. That is not the end of Jonah's story. God had other things for him. I love Rock of Ages, too. There's nothing in my hand I bring, nothing. Simply to the cross I cling naked come to you for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. In all of these ways, we bring our emptiness to him and say, Lord, fill me. There's nothing I can do. And so I want to ask you a couple of questions in conclusion. The first one is this. Can you see what God is doing? Now, I don't know what he's doing personally in your story. I don't know what he's doing, but I know that he acts in the same way that he acts with Jonah. Do you see the consequences of your sin? Some of you are running and in the midst of the trial and crisis, there's an opportunity to see yourself clearly, to see God clearly, to see your circumstances as God sees them. And if you're running, this is God's invitation to you. See what I'm doing. Pay attention. He is bringing people regularly to the end of themselves and helping them to see that all of their running is in vain and every vain idol is going to turn up worthless. And some of you are running in, in the opposite direction. And I want to ask you, do you see the consequences of your sin? Can you see them? Because God's hope in those consequences is that it would bring us to a point of confession. For us to acknowledge our need and say, Lord, I, I, I'm in need of your mercy. Do you see the hope of redemption? Are you in the midst of a really, really dark place? And can you see the point that he's trying to make? that, that Your only hope is me. I'm the only... I'm the only possibility for you to be delivered from this dark and dreadful place. Can you see what he's doing? Do you see the futility of your idols? I pray that the same would be true of you that happened for Jonah, that he looks around him and says, all who trust in vain idols are forsaking their hope of steadfast love. You're forsaking the one thing you were made to enjoy. When we trust in idols to provide for us, Some sense of power, control, and mastery over our life. And all of those things, God is inviting us to see the futility of them. Do you see it? And then I want to ask you, do you see God's salvation? Jesus Christ is the only hope that we would praise our God of salvation. It's not in in our ability to pray correctly. God didn't deliver Jonah because he made this prayer really beautiful. He's crying out in desperation. God delivered him because of his great salvation. And he's responding in thanksgiving. Jonah suddenly saw in this moment things clearly. And it took a lot of really terrible circumstances for him to see things clearly. And he sees it. God's still merciful. He's still delivering. And the irony of Jonah's praise is that he's so happy to receive God's mercy, but he's a little greedy with it. That's what we're going to find out next week. So stick around next week. He's really glad to be the glad recipient of God's mercy, but he's not real pleased about other people getting it. It's really ironic. (laughs) Second point is this. All Christian life is confession and repentance. That is everything. The beginning of the 95 Thesis Martin Luther nails to the door at Wittenberg Cathedral. The very first of these theses is this. Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And the same is true today. He wants all of our Christian life to be one of returning. We're co- constantly coming back and denying our sin and pursuing his steadfast love. We're saying, hey, listen, this is not what I want for my life. I want you, Jesus. He wants that to be the regular pattern for everyone who believes. So it's not just the way that we get in the door. This is how we walk with Jesus, okay? It's not not the beginning of your Christian life that you say, hey, I've been a sinner and I'm far from you and I I need your grace. That's how you begin every single day. That's how you end every single day. That's how we walk with Jesus. It's the regular appropriation of his mercy towards us where we see, hey, I know there's So many ways that I see and even more that I don't see where I've fallen short of your glory, God, and I'm desperate in need of faith and repentance to take this next step towards you. So all of the Christian life is repentance. Our confession is this, Jesus is greater than Jonah. In Matthew chapter 12, he compares himself to Jonah. He says, some of you remember Jonah. There's someone greater than Jonah here. Jesus Christ went When he was told to go, he said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And he died in our place for our sins. And so our hope of this regular pace and stepping of faith and repentance of confession and repentance of confession and repentance is this, that Jesus Christ stands before us as a great high priest. And he looks on us with compassion and mercy. And he's tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. And so for all of you who are a little reluctant to see yourself as someone who's like messed up recently. Part of your reluctance might be this. You only see this God who's judge. And you don't see the God who's merciful. Who wants to meet you in the midst of your story today. Do not be far from him. In so many ways, when we're reluctant to this regular pattern of confession or repentance, it denies this hope of steadfast love. We're pursuing other things. This is the way of pursuing Christ, confession, repentance, receiving of His grace every day. One of the first calls to repentance in the New Testament church, in Acts chapter 3, there's this invitation for those that were listening to repent. And there's a promise in this invitation. Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. This is my invitation to you today too. That we would be regularly bringing ourselves to this table of confession and repentance so that this promise would be true. First, that our sins would be blotted out, just as they were at the beginning of your Christian life. If you've been walking with Jesus for a very long time, the only way that your sins have been blotted out is because of what Christ did on your behalf. And the promise is that there's times of refreshing when we bring ourselves to that table. Some of you feel desperate need for renewal today and you bring empty cups to the table, and there's not much in your praise, it's really tough for you to sing God is able, because you're wondering, how is He able? It's really tough for you to sing those true statements that we just sang about our identity in Christ with joy. But the invitation of Christ is to come so that you might be refreshed, so that you might be renewed, so that times of renewal would come over and over and over again. And so for those of you who are in Christ Jesus, Here's the invitation today to come once again and be renewed. If you've been walking with Jesus for a very long time, the invitation is still the same as the very first one that you heard from Christ. Turn to me so that your sins might be blotted out and times of renewal would come. And for some of you in the room, maybe this is the first time that you've even recognized that that you've just been searching on Zillow for God, okay? You've just been seeking him out. You're wondering what the features are. And if you're on the precipice of, of following Christ, here's his invitation to you for maybe the very first time. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest for your souls. Some of you are so weary. And the result of your sin is going to be the same. It's just going to be more darkness and consequences. His invitation is to follow him so you can be part of what he's purposing to do in the world. And that's my invitation to you today too, to come to him so that times of refreshing might come to you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that it would bring about fruit in our lives. That we would not only see the futility of running away from you, but we would say this great invitation that you extend to everyone who believes that we might be saved. That we would bring our emptiness to you and be filled that we bring our weariness to you and be renewed. In all of these things, God, I pray that you'd be glorified as the God who is sovereign over everything, who brings this great invitation to everyone who's weary to come and be refreshed and renewed. I pray that today this would be a day of repentance and faith. I pray this in the name of Jesus.